Brought to you by Moonbeam Multimedia. This is 16 to 1, a podcast about education, teaching, and learning. What was the most rewarding moment of teaching over the last couple of weeks? Well, I got my back to school sickness. We love that. <laughs> That's not rewarding. Um, very rewarding to build up my immunity to these little snots. No. It's been really fun to have students excited to participate in homecoming. Homecoming festivities? Yeah. yeah. You're gearing up. It's in a yeah, couple of weeks. We're like school. prepping. We're planning. Uh, my friend and I recently took over the group that leads it. And the kids are excited. And that's been really fun because they haven't been excited the past few years. Yeah. So it feels good. Cool. Yeah. It's been very time consuming. But it's been really fun to have their input and to get them into it. Yeah. I was curious just in general how you felt about starting out a new school year having new responsibilities as yeah. an advisor and mm-hmm. having new interactions and sort of structures yeah. through which to interact with your kids. Picked up a couple new advisor roles. I don't really know what I'm doing with National Honor Society yet, but I'll figure it out. Preparing the next generation of civic leaders? I think um, that'll come right after the disco dance. <laughs> I'm not sure that I can say that's what I'm doing at this exact moment as I'm you. selling t-shirts. And I got you. Planning tickets and Educators, buying bouquets of flowers. Right. I I think they wear many. Hats, maybe educators. that's um, next nine weeks. Oh, I see. I'm not sure that I'm I'm prepping all of that quite yet, but now I definitely feel like I'm behind on my duties, and on your so I duties. will I will adjust gotcha. immediately. I'm canceling the dance as we speak. No, no, please don't. I saw the photo of your <laughs> door that uh, you and your colleagues have all decorated your classroom doors. Yeah, to like celebrate. A- our principal made our theme this year, Try Kindness. So our like homecoming dance theme is disco, which aren't really cohesive. <laughs> Difficult concepts to unify. Like I also I don't know like what our students thought like a disco themed homecoming was. Uh-huh. It's basically they just, just wanted a disco ball. It's just neon lights. Neon lights and disco balls. And okay. neon colors. Well, I mean they probably don't really want the music of disco at no. the homecoming dance either. Like, I brought up Earth, Wind, and Fire, and they were like, no. <laughs> no. So, like, Motown. Th- like, they no, thought thank you. Whitney Houston was disco. And I was like, oh, okay. Not quite. Huh. So, I don't know what they thought it was. Maybe there's an opportunity for a more accurate telling of that historical time period that you have just uncovered. Yeah. Um, I'm going to add that. To my Julius Caesar unit, just a brief disco, uh, make it sure everybody knows what's coming up. No, I just, I think they just thought it was bright lights and flashy things. Okay. And that's okay. We love a disco. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they asked me things about disco and I'm like, I wasn't alive for that. So like, but you're old. You should know. Yeah. Right? It's like, I'm 33. Um, <laughs> there haven't, there has not been a disco in a great while. Certainly not. In southeastern Ohio. Mm-hmm. So thank you for the update. In the highly varied and always interesting life of a high school teacher slash student council Thanks. advisor. Yeah, happy to, happy to give you that insider scoop. Never a dull moment. I wish for them.
you know how like in the restaurant business, like you never say like, oh, we're slow. Mm-mm. We never say like, oh, I'm bored. Mm. Oh, I wish I had more to, you know. You wish you had a dull moment? I wish, I wish for a moment where I was like, hmm, it's calm. That's bad. <laughs> if there is that time, then I'm like, oh, it's a full moon. And I know it is. You ready to get into the education headlines for the week? Yes. What are we talking about? Here we go. The United States Office of Educational Technology has released a new policy report entitled Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Teaching and Learning, Insights and Recommendations. The report offers high-level definitions and recommendations aimed at educators and administrators. Essentially what it's doing is it points out the strength of AI as pattern detection technology. It explains how AI may eventually be used to help differentiate instruction, enable new forms of classroom interaction, and support educators in their jobs through various degrees and types of automation. Uh-huh. Hmm. And we talked about this somewhat in yeah. our in our future of education. Yeah, uh, I'm episode. hesitant at best. But uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, it does point out the risks, which are both uh, right now known and unknown, which is maybe the scariest part of this. The unknown um, risks of AI. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's just those risks that are associated with AI technologies and basically just suggests that educators need to become much more involved in conversations having to do with the creation, use, and governance of this type of technology. Mm-hmm. And also an increased need for trust and safety measures and to help draw attention to the issues of bias in the training data and modeling. And we, I know we've talked about this a lot. I'm, I'm pretty he- hesitant. As far as this goes, still, I think the gray area is much larger than the black or the white section of it, for sure, for me right now. Yeah, As far as use. But I did use it today um, as I was doing some homecoming stuff, and it it did a great job. AI. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, but I, you have taught me how to harness it, and that has made me better informed, Mm -hmm. and I think that's good, but I've had to learn that myself, Mm -hmm. and I'm an adult, so... From the perspective of a technologist, I read this, and I think that it's a pretty good, though relatively short and high-level primer for educators. Yeah. I think, if anything, like you were mentioning, it kind of tends to overstate the strength of what's currently available. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of media coverage of AI is kind of like either apocalyptic doom and gloom or treating it like it's the best thing since sliced bread. It's right neither of those things no. um but, but it's I think, good yeah it's not great it's not super i think a lot of this technology has a long way to go in terms of privacy and data use and i think we also have quite a lot to unpack in terms of the ethical use of everybody's data for these trading sets mm-hmm. and i think it certainly would help to have educators involved in those conversations yeah. especially at the policy level but anyway it's a interesting little document it's relatively short like four or five pages or something like that it's it's worth a read over if you're extremely unfamiliar with these technologies if you're already familiar with them you might not learn anything you don't already know but yeah it's it's if you're looking for some guidance i think it's a good kind of high level policy document headline number two for this one we're going back to florida which is right now always a little bit dicey could Um, be anything florida man who knows there's a lot going on. Insert in anything here. Yeah, I think what we have here is a situation where Ron DeSantis is using Florida as a kind of 
stage to play out some of his political ambitions. Oh, absolutely. It's a little it's a little it's his hard. favorite soapbox. Yeah. So so what's coming out of Florida is that the public university system there has approved a new and somewhat controversial college entrance exam known as the classic learning test. From the CLT website, they claim, quote, the CLT is based on a classical education model. Like the name suggests, it focuses on classical texts like Shakespeare and Aristotle, but it was also born out of concerns that today's education relies too heavily on current trends in American culture and legislation, end quote. Okay, so some thoughts here. The classic learning test itself is a reaction to, like, the college board and the ACT completely dominating the college entrance exam market. And I think that in the abstract, it's good to try to shake up a testing regime like that. Mm. You know, yeah. this is the same college board that we talked about last episode who has been putting student GPAs and test scores into advertising technology, for example. So I well, think anytime you can break up a monopoly, I yeah. think is good practice. Yeah. Like I'm, I think that's even like, I'm imagining this as a teacher thinking, okay, some variety we like. Uh huh. I think, however, <laughs> that it's not a great look to hitch the success of your business to the Ron DeSantis media gravy train, which is a little bit what's going on here. <laughs> These people are capitalizing on a moment for sure. This contains highly charged rhetoric, political in nature. Mm -hmm. It's just, I think it's not a good look to double down on the overt politicization of schools and teaching. Second issue here, and I say this as, as someone who has an education in, you know, a classics education, my question about the CLT and about really any college entrance exam is what exactly is it that we're supposed to be assessing? <laughs> um, they should be designed to test a student's capacity for academic work and their test-taking skills and their readiness to undertake difficult college-level academic work. I don't think they should be covert popularity contests for certain intellectual traditions. I think that students entering public colleges and universities are going to come from an incredibly diverse set of backgrounds and life experiences. And not a lot of those backgrounds and life experiences interact with like St. Thomas Aquinas, who apparently features in this test uh, as one of the authors. So <laughs> the company has responded to criticisms about narrowly focusing on the Western canon. And they've said that they are interested in diversifying their author base and stuff like that. But I think what's going on here and through some of my research, I guess I will say I became convinced of the, the notion that the guy means well, that the CLT sure. exam means well, that Hopes it's designed. To. Yeah, sure. That it really is designed to address what I think is a shortfall in assessing critical thinking skills mm -hmm. among our high school graduates in this country. I think that's a real thing. Which can be true, but also. Right. Like I said, I'm willing to say that it has good intentions, broadly speaking, but I think that it misunderstands the project of how to actually screen for critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And to be fair to the CLT, I think it misunderstands it in a way that I would have fallen into at a different point in my life. Like, I, I think in my life would have thought at some point that this was just fine mm -hmm. <laughs> without understanding some of the roadblocks you're putting up. So anyway, I think this is more about trying to construct a sort of ethical, moral, intellectual, probably religious student body of a certain sort than it is about assessing student skills. Mm -hmm. So that that's where I think this this thing goes a little bit astray. Thoughts on the CLT? Would you recommend that your students Ooh. take this as a test alternative? Probably not yet. <laughs> I'm going to wait yeah. a little bit longer. Yeah. You probably would have done really, really well on that test. 
it's a test not only on content but on the values of a particular tradition mm -hmm. and it, it kind of pretends not to be because it's claiming that what it's really about is testing critical thinking skills but it's veiled i think uh maybe as we will see here throughout this episode topic because we're going to talk about teaching history today i think perhaps the impetus to to invent things like the classic learning test comes out of a misunderstanding of mm -hmm. teaching history how you do that effectively what um, it looks like a kind of misplaced importance on facts mm. and figures as opposed to say contexts and conversations or you know just a different way of approaching it anyway i think that you might be able to trace a path from certain ideas about how to teach history to a product mm -hmm. like the classic learning test. i agree with that all right so like i said we're talking about teaching history this week yeah. you have a, a special connection to this having been raised by a history teacher a history teacher and a reading teacher. Yeah, I got yeah. a double whammy. Mm -hmm. I think as I've gotten older, I've realized that I love history, but what I really love is the truth. As we go through this, we'll see that what we're taught in history is not always true. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a complicated point um, that I even have to deal with with my students. Or is maybe only provisionally true. Yeah, I think maybe provisionally true is right. Although some of it's just flat out wrong. True, true, true. Um, so I can, I can be willing to meet you in the middle for a lot, uh -huh. but some of it's just not correct. Yep. Uh -huh. Honestly, I think what it was was I wanted to share it with my dad. And I knew someday I'd grow up and be on a lot of trivia teams. <laughs> and that would be my hope. <laughs> You're saving up for a Jeopardy appearance I'm, someday. Oh, gosh. No, no. I'm not well-rounded enough for Jeopardy, but I do wish I could. No, I think it stemmed from a love of reading. And I think that that leads pretty naturally into history. In my experience of a well-taught history course, it's been a reading course, and I think that's probably why I've loved them as much as I have. And I've I've come to value it differently as a teacher, but now I just I really value like what's correct. Here's an example. This week I had a student tell me that a book he was reading was about a blind man who went on the rapids in the Grand Canyon. Okay. Okay. He told me it wasn't possibly true because there was not a river in the Grand Canyon because the canyon is in the desert. And I thought he was joking with me until he said that the whole thing had to be fake. But I've had moments like this student being so sure that there can't be a river in the Grand Canyon that even teaching what's true and factual is hard. I don't think it used to be this hard. Not in my experience. I don't know if my dad would say as a 30-year teacher if it was easy to teach. But I have found myself caring more and more and more every year to make sure that what I teach is as true as I can possibly make it. I mean, I think that makes and sense. And as accurate as I can make it. Yeah, I think that makes sense given that we're in a mass media-fueled cultural moment where misinformation is a very big part of our of our lives right now. So I think that especially now it would be challenging to build a context around historical conversations uh -huh. or historical moments or trends or political forces or whatever it may be. I think it would be very challenging to try to build a context around that that helps kids understand it is um, given that there is a kind of fight to the death going on about the importance of <laughs> historical accuracy to begin with right yeah this is related to book bans and other academic suppression that we've been talking about recently but i think we're in a moment where teaching history is is uniquely challenging i think i first became interested in history not only because my dad taught it but because i like to know things and maybe you felt this way when you were growing up but Sometimes it wasn't cool to know things. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But I liked it. Uh -huh. I liked understanding it. Still to this day, I love being in a museum. 
I think I've just been that way a long time. Mm -hmm. I think I enjoy sharing it. I think it's why I knew from a young age that the only option for me ever was to be a teacher. Because mm -hmm. I found myself loving to tell people about the stuff I learned that probably wasn't that important or necessary. It's important and necessary about. for you. It was, uh -huh. but like, has it come back up? <laughs> no. Okay. So I think I started to care about it because I have a good mind for those things. My brain does well with knowledge like that. And then when I realized I could teach history through reading, I was like, game over. I can teach English forever. And so when I see people not understand the importance of history or not understand the signs that showed us what was to come, whatever that may have been, yeah, that's what scares me more than not knowing. It's the not being able to even assess it. Yeah, I think it has a tendency to, among other obvious things, make us feel extremely unanchored. <laughs> it makes us feel like we kind of can be blown around by any trend or any political figure or any media presence. I think that the sort of chaos that we feel can directly trace to this not being able to have a, a feeling of rootedness in our own history. For sure. I think first that history helps us understand the present. That seems obvious perhaps to you and me, but I think that by studying history, we can learn about events and trends that have shaped the world we live in. And hypothetically, this understanding can help us make better decisions about the future. That's a big hypothetical, though. Hopefully. Uh, yeah. It's what we want. When taught well, history exposes us to cultures and perspectives different from the ones in which we operate in our day-to-day. -day. By studying history, we can develop an awareness of and appreciation for different lenses through which we can view and interpret human experience. History can help us develop a sense of the full spectrum of challenges and triumphs available to humans. We have damning parts of our own history, and learning to grapple with those things is an important part of learning history. But we also have celebrations and achievements that are worthy of attention, too. Finding out how to put all of those things in a proper context of progress is, is difficult. Mm -hmm. And then... Like we were already talking about, history teaches us critical thinking skills. So y you have to learn to analyze evidence, evaluate arguments, draw conclusions from all of this. Mm -hmm. So history is as much about navigating what is true, just like what you're talking about, mm -hmm. as it is about facts and figures and people and dates and stuffy artifacts and things like that. And then the last one I had here is that by studying history, we learn about the importance of civic participation of all sorts. We'll put this in the show notes, but there's a 2020 article from Edweek Research. They did a survey of educators and the teachers were presented with two choices about the teaching of history. And the choices were between preparing students to be active and informed citizens or teaching analytical research and critical thinking skills. 78% of respondents said that they believe that history was about preparing students to be active and informed citizens. The entire purpose of it is not to make students into passive receptacles of facts and figures, but to prepare them to engage socially. There's a quote from that same article that says this. There's long been concern about American students' lack of history and civics knowledge. On national tests, 85% of 8th graders score below proficient in U.S. history, as do about 75% in geography and civics. Now there's also hand-wringing about whether it's possible to teach these subjects in an even-handed way. But a more basic problem is that many students reach middle and high school without enough background knowledge to grasp much history at all, let alone understand it and all of its complexities, especially if they haven't been able to pick up historical knowledge at home. I can tell you, 
on the geography part of this quote, (laughs) my sweet freshman that I work with, their first test was identifying labeling states. Mm -hmm. It was just a blank map and you wrote them in. The next step is to match states with our capitals. And as previously mentioned a million times on this podcast, we live in Ohio. We are considered the Midwest. I know it's a bit of a stretch, but that's what we're considered. And there are students who do not know who our neighboring states are. Mm -hmm. They know that West Virginia touches Ohio. They do not know where. Okay. They know that Michigan touches us. They do not know where. It is remarkable. These kids couldn't even tell me where Connecticut was. If we broke up the country into like four sections, Uh they could not do that. Yikes. That is a concern. And I feel like before your freshman year, you should at least be able to identify your neighboring states. Yeah. Just to latch onto the civics part a little bit, part of the reason that we decided to do this episode is because we had a conversation with some friends where it became clear that like some basic workings of government and law and policy were unfamiliar. Yeah. To the point where I became like very concerned. I mean, it. I'm just like, is our education system really giving people this impression of how law works, for example? Because if our education system is doing that, we are setting people up to fail. So what that basically leads us to is trying to understand how do we teach history uh-huh. and what does it look like? Yeah, what's working and what's not? <laughs> I would say a lot of what we're doing isn't working, Okay, unfortunately. Sadly, yes. And All I would right. say it didn't work for us either. I think for us being a generation who has lived through a remarkable amount of things in such a short 33 years of my life, I've learned so many things wrong. And you can't surprise me anymore. Don't you feel that way sometimes? I feel like the volume of the news is constantly loud. I guess I just mean, like, I feel like in our lives, we have experienced some stuff. That's all. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty much a meme at this point that we have, but yeah. Other generations are like, I remember when Kennedy was shot, and it's like two things. Yeah, well, like I said, I think I think that is as much shaped by the availability of mass media as anything. I'm just think- being dramatic. Well, I think more stuff rises to the surface of sure. our political consciousness because point. we're all surface all the time. Yeah, because you just the news used to be turned off. Yeah, we like TV stopped. We at were, eleven, right? We were growing up in a time when the twenty-four hour news cycle was coming into existence. I remember trying to turn on my TV at like one a.m. and it was just infomercials. There was no TV; it right. was just an ad, and you mm-hmm. were stuck with whatever they were selling mm-hmm. forever till at least four a.m. Anyways. Yeah. So how do we teach history? Yes. I found a really interesting article from the American Historical Association. Oh, okay. Which I aim to join also. Oh. Um, I'm going to be searching that up. Future member? Okay. Um, I, yeah. This article was called Teaching Content, Teaching Skills. What I learned in my first five years in the high school classroom. And this was by a woman named Katharina Matro. Her article, and I'll list it in the show notes, and I've, I've got a few quotes here because I really liked it. Basically, what this teacher realized was that Teaching history from her textbook was not actually developing critical thinking skills. She quoted the results of a study by Fairleigh Dickinson and the American Historical Association called Surveying the Past. Across all age groups, respondents indicated that they associated high school history classes with the teaching of name, dates, and other facts, while their college classes tended to be about asking questions. In other words, adults think high school history is about content knowledge, while college history is about critical thinking skills. Yikes. Okay. Was that your experience at all? I know your undergrad yeah. is a little different. Yeah. I think I lucked out in that I had a couple of pretty good 
teachers of history, but I do think that facts and figures and memorizing dates and places and numbers is overemphasized leading all the way up to high school graduation. Mm -hmm. And I think that we don't do nearly enough of preparing students to ask questions, even of the way history is taught to them. I I think that there's a little bit too much of an investment Mm -hmm. in the idea of this is an authority telling you facts and truth about events. Sure. That kind of authority-based view of teaching history, as much as we want to get to the truth of the matter, like you're saying, I think that that kind of way of teaching history feeds directly into students being unquestioning. And I think that being unquestioning is possibly like the root of all evil. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But but I would agree with this this overall assessment that I wasn't engaged with the project of asking questions of history and of how history is taught until I got to college. Yeah. That description is exactly what I experienced. I went to college and I took history classes and they wanted me to ask questions. And I was like, no, no, I ask you questions, but you give me the answer. You tell me answers. Yeah. (laughs) I felt very uneasy going into that type of learning because I had not been trained for it. So what this teacher realized was that her students weren't asking questions, right? Because that's a skill that you have to, you have to develop. So what she started to do though, was she started introducing articles and other essays that supported what the textbook was doing. And her hope was that this gave the students a connection to somebody who was real. Because when you're reading a textbook, you don't know who wrote that page, right? There's nothing to connect you to it. It does feel very much like a disembodied source of authority. Right, right. So what this gave her students, though, was a chance to look into these people and say, okay, what'd they study? Where did they study? And how does that inform their writing? Quote, students were not aware that historians had relied on historical thinking skills to produce their textbooks. Oh, okay. Most students experience the content in history class as completely divorced from the present in which they live, when instead, teachers should be open about the fact that how we tell the stories about the past influences our present and helps us make sense of it. Mm -hmm. If I had to nail two things on the head that were like, this is exactly our thing of concern, this is it, right? There is a possibility for human error, and it's still coming by way of someone who understands it this way and is communicating it this way. That that a scholar of history has a lens through which they're approaching their topic. So if you are a, a scholar of the Civil War and you are raised deep in the South, that might affect how you write Mm -hmm. or your interpretation of letters or your interpretation of whatever. But by reading a textbook, you don't get that. You don't get that information to have it help you assess the text. Do you think that textbooks are awful? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what happens is they overly sanitize. They do. Context, right? They do. And it's not it's not necessarily pernicious it's not necessarily designed no they're trying to get as much done as quickly as they can right they're going for economy and efficiency when you're going for extreme efficiency in communicating the gist of a historical event you're going to cut out a lot of things Mm -hmm. that are important to the context and to the narrative and Mm -hmm. to the understanding of how we should be acting now right yeah, I often wonder if they're like a self-defeating project. Like, yeah. Should we just toss out <laughs> textbooks altogether? So. Because they represent such, a, such an obscured process of reducing thought down to these little nuggets. Right. And that, that process in itself is important to understand, but mm-hmm. we hardly ever get to teach that. I did a two-week Civil War trip when I was in college, earning history credit during the summer. And we always joked about the vocabulary that was used in the home of Confederate generals. 
Mm-hmm. Like I the docents who are walking you around these places? Yeah, or uh, like the uh-huh. the people who dressed up to give you the tour. Oh, or like, the you reenactors. Know, sure. But like we, we did a tour of Stonewall Jackson's home. Right. Stonewall Jackson is one of the most famous Confederate generals. The way that they talked about the Union and the North. Had I been taking that tour on some family trip with little to no knowledge of the Civil War, that could have absolutely altered the way that I understood Stonewall Jackson and and his role. Mm -hmm. So we would walk out and be like, wow, that language was really interesting. But we could do that because we had the critical thinking and reasoning skills to look at it and say, what's their point? What is the unspoken assumption going on Mm -hmm. in this history tour? If you had little to no knowledge and that was a foundational piece for you, much like a textbook could be, it would completely alter the way that you understand it. So that's kind of her point, too, is that students are not aware that historians relied on their thinking skills to write this piece and yeah. to teach us this thing. Right. So I do think textbooks have something to do with that because they don't show the work, right? No. <laughs> they don't show how the yeah. sausage is made to no. produce a particular kind of narrative like, of history. And on April whatever, 1865, yeah, it's like, well, okay, we just got here. There's no... <laughs> They don't even necessarily make it clear that they have gone through a process of Mm -mm. making decisions about how to frame information. So anyway. But that article was just basically acknowledging that to best teach history, we need to use more than our textbooks. And we need to encourage students to understand that this is coming from another person who hasn't been informed in some way. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a valuable part of learning. So, Okay, so another one really quickly, another article I found came from the Fordham Institute. It was by a guy named Jose Gregory. So his quote says this, quote, when push comes to shove, my personal approach is to allocate more time to watershed or turning points in the U.S. history like the Civil War so that students can develop a more than superficial understanding of these transformative events. In other words, it's possible to achieve adequate breadth and at least periodic depth, provided you pick your spots to go deeper. (laughs) This is something I've struggled with in teaching the Holocaust. I have had such a hard time picking where I put my focus. I was going too deep and too much, and I was losing kids along the way. Whereas now I know exactly what to go deeper into, and it helps build like a much better cohesive history. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And lastly, exposing students to multiple diverse perspectives is valuable, but not all perspectives have equal historical significance. I thought those were good. Mm -hmm. Start there. I do want to ask, because I'm sure it comes up for you in selecting your reading curriculum, uh, especially on historical topics, uh, age appropriateness. This is a really tough one because I think it feeds into some of these challenges with regard to unlearning or learning incorrectly or learning the incomplete story or other ways that narratives can become warped. I think one of those ways in which things become warped is through a concern about age appropriateness. And I don't mean to say that we should jump into teaching the heaviest, most difficult topics to our kindergartners. Mm -hmm. But I think at least when we were growing up, there was perhaps a tendency to overcorrect, to to put on kid gloves about important events of our history. I think we got handled a little too carefully. Just from the outset, I will say that not every country or national system of education or regional system of education deals with this in the same way. There's an interesting example uh, that we found in an article, we'll, sh- we'll share it in the show notes, but it's about Norway. Norway and Finland and all of those kind of companies, all of those countries. All of our favorite companies. All those companies. All of those countries get special focus in education circles. It's a problem because they're so culturally homogenous, especially like compared to us. They're a 
they're able to accomplish things in those systems that we probably couldn't accomplish here just because everybody's rowing the same direction, let's just say. But anyway, Norway, for example, includes history in its national curriculum for children ages one to six. Exclamation point. You know. (laughs) One. So a 2017 study found that Norwegian kids in this age group eagerly absorb history when teachers use storytelling supplemented by trips to museums and old houses or dress up in period clothes. And children often retain information, are highly curious, and develop a sense of the past. And then it said that even older children and adults take in information more easily through stories or narratives. That's which me. makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then this article also asks this question, is it, is it really that important to begin teaching history in kindergarten or even earlier? And it argues that the answer to this is yes, because the earlier that things get started there, the more likely it is that kids will understand the project of history, which is kind of what we're talking about here. History is a project. It's a project of interpreting events. I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel that we tend to overcorrect because we don't want to expose kids to something too difficult when they are too young. I feel like I am constantly leading my students through like a period of unlearning, if that makes sense. Right. So many times my students, if they if they feel that what I have taught them is the truth, they will say, why did they lie to us before? And that's such a hard question to answer because it's like, well, there was, there is like a level of age appropriateness, right? That's a factor. Also, you didn't get everything you needed for this to make sense to you. I know I've talked about this a million times on this podcast too, and I'm sorry, but every time somebody's like, I love the boy in the striped pajamas, which is the book and the movie about a young boy who gets into a concentration camp during World War II. I have to spend so much time going through that book and movie with my students to be like, this can't happen and here's 800 reasons why. Whereas had they been taught a reasonable, relevant text, I wouldn't have to spend two days going through why we have to forget everything and not compare Auschwitz to the camp and the book. The hope of a historical fiction is one thing, and I love historical fiction as a genre, but I'm old enough now to understand its purpose. When I was teaching the Sherwin Alexi book, I did all kinds of other units and lessons on Native Americans. And the students would be like, well, yeah, but, you know, we gave them all this land and we let them live there. And it's like, "Mm, that's the phrase, let them live there. So that was another time that I was like, okay, today we're unlearning this. And I mean, same is true of the civil rights era. And this is where some of the age appropriate conversations enter, but also just like, when is our omission from the historical narrative causing more damage than good and we might think we're being well-intentioned and shielding students from some of the uglier bits of our own history but i think that we have to find appropriate ways of getting uh, more of the Mm -hmm. whole story and i've heard this so many times why did they lie to me and i want to believe in my heart obviously that this teacher did not set out that day to be like well gonna weave this one together and this will be their known Mm -hmm. history of this thing like i truly do not think that's happening I think that what they're being taught is so boiled down to nothing that they have little to work with. Right. Oversimplifications can sound like lies. Yeah. Especially for younger learners. This is my favorite part. Yeah. I'm excited. We wanted to talk a little bit about stuff that we have, that we had to unlearn. A potpourri of things. Yeah. A cornucopia, if you will. Would you like to go first about a couple of these things? I would love to. Okay. I had so much fun with this list. Uh I asked one of my coworkers for some help on this too. The truth about Mount Rushmore. 
Oh, the truth. So like being that it's smaller than you thought it was. Oh, okay, well, we know that it's way way smaller. So unimpressive. You were very disappointed with the scale of Mount Rushmore when, it was you, a long when you saw it. It was a long drive. No, like I think it was like this symbol of like the American West, like the expansion, right? Like, ooh, these bigger and better things. And it was actually just a horrible thing that they chose to do to Native Americans by taking some very, very sacred land and putting these big oofs heads on them. You know, there's that. Yeah. Also, to go along with that is like the truth about George Washington's teeth. I was always taught that like he had wooden teeth and just like had bad genes, which was true. He had especially bad luck, like with uh, his teeth. Like okay. he just it wasn't in the cards for him. Yeah. I remember being told that he had wooden teeth. They were for whatever reason. What were they? They were slaves' teeth. Oh. Mm-hmm. On iron. I, uh, you or also, lead or yeah, whatever. Yeah, lead. You lead. read that they were mounted in mm-hmm. lead, which in and with of like, itself is a problem. What was it? Elephant ivory? Something like yeah. that. They were like carved. But this guy took slaves' teeth and put them in his mouth to eat his food with. Yep. Okay. Okay. Also, just along with that is like kind of just our general understanding of the founding fathers. Yeah. They are on such a pedestal. I just don't know that we need to worship them at quite the rate that we do. These are not insignificant undertakings that these men did in their lives. They're not. Mm-hmm. These projects are obviously of historical importance, but it's the conflation of that with this sense that we should be automatically reverential. Yeah. That was definitely a part of the teaching of history when I was a kid. I, I actually pulled out this example teaching around Abraham Lincoln in general. When I got to college, I finally started reading some of the letters that Abraham Lincoln actually wrote during the, t- the time of the Civil War, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this is weird, because you bring it up with somebody who thinks of Lincoln as a great political leader and a great order, and there's almost instant defensiveness. Mm-hmm. But it's like, I'm not really trying to attack. I'm just trying to say that Lincoln himself said that the most important thing here is the unity the unity of the nation and not freeing slaves. If if the integrity of the union is put in a balance against the idea of freedom for enslaved peoples, then the integrity of the union would have won out in Lincoln's mind. And giving that part of history that nuanced of a treatment is very different, I think, from mm-hmm. giving it the textbook treatment, which just says... Lincoln liberated slaves, basically. Emancipation Proclamation, period. Yeah, yeah. It gave me a real appreciation for original texts, for an unmitigated approach to history. It empowered me to read on my own Mm -hmm. the thinking of the Founding Fathers. And it's very different from the experience of learning about them in elementary school. And then, like, another one, this is from my coworker, and it was about how MLK was widely unpopular at the time of his death. Uh-huh. And uh, we have a note here that he died with a public disapproval rating of nearly 75%. Yeah, I pulled that from a Smithsonian Magazine article. Nice. She she teaches a couple of MLK pieces, uh, and she teaches American literature, so it's a little bit more suited for her course. But students will always be like, well, he was a hero and he was all these things because now, you know, all these years later, we look at him differently. And she always asks him, but like, yeah, but how did it end for him? Martin Luther King Jr. kind of abandoned some of the earlier rhetoric in favor of more divisive rhetoric. Yes, stirring. Toward the time of his death, he started advocating for political change in a way that was 
widely not accepted. Uh, mm-hmm. He also was speaking out against the Vietnam War at the time. But like, he basically became unpalatable even to uh, especially the white political yeah. leaders that had previously be- been on board with him. Yeah. And we do not treat that evolution of really at all, or at least it, this mm-hmm. was my own education prior to college. It treated him as an uncomplicated champion of civil rights. As I previously mentioned on my list, the truth about Native Americans and what we did to them and how the United States took their land. And then I wanted to add like the first Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. Like that's such a cute little coloring page when we're in school. Like, okay, now we're just going to do the turkey handout every other and they're all sitting at a table and they just eat their turkey and it's like... A Native American and a pilgrim. And it's like, well, no. Well, no. I feel like I did not understand, as well as I should have, the lives of slaves and political forces that were, like, motivating the Civil War, uh-huh. as far as the argument for states' rights. States' rights to do what, exactly? To have slaves. Um, <laughs> of course. I love people, like, this, this meme of being like, oh, it was a war of states' rights. Yes. A to war do the what? states' right to have slaves. fill in the blank. Uh-huh. Okay. Also... Maybe the most notable thing on my list is how many freaking kids died during the Industrial Revolution. It was always like, and they employed children because of their nimbleness and their small hands. And it's like, well, you didn't mention the other the other part of being nimble with small hands was you gotten things that then crushed you. Yeah. And it was like, but they put the kids to work. And I'm like, eh. I think the Industrial Revolution onward is one of the most convoluted subject matter areas in history, at least teaching it in public schools. And I added here too that I don't really think that my history classes adequately prepared me to understand how ruthless the giant captains of industry and invention could be. I read a book a few years ago. I think I've talked about it on the pod. It's called Meet You in Hell, Andrew Carnegie, Henry Clay Frick, and the Bitter Partnership that Changed America. Um, I have a student reading that book right now. It's a great book. I know. I told him. I think the guy's local, the historian. Oh, well, my student was reading it. I was like, oh, it's a great book. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's super interesting, but it also taught me that these guys were brutal to one another and to their employees and to... uh, Mm -hmm. It was brutal. Brutal. Absolutely brutal. Uh, I learned about the homestead strike very violent. I learned about things that just were not in the textbook. Mm-hmm. And I have also learned as somebody who's become more interested in technology over time that the ingenuity of American inventors was often overstated or at least was too simply presented. We we credit people like Thomas Edison for inventing the light bulb when it's really a whole team of people who are working on this project and it probably never would have materialized had it not been for the human community bringing it's diversity to bear on a particular problem. We treat inventions as like the product of their inventors one to one and mm-hmm. congratulations. But mm-hmm. anyway, yeah. My next one was just like a misunderstanding of the establishment of the United States. Like, yeah. How we got how here. we got here, what we were doing before, like, why were we here? What was our hope? Who was here before us? How did it work when we got it started? I had a really good government teacher. So I had like a, a grasp on government and law and court cases my senior year we did a court yeah. case a mock trial right that's important for understanding a lot about how the how american justice system works yeah. so like i thought all of that was good but just broadly speaking a misunderstanding about how government operates mm-hmm. this is more related to that example i was saying earlier of like our friends who thought that like once a law is passed it is forever going to yeah. be the law no. like the laws are mutable right but that's not a mm-hmm. <laughs> so apparently there's some confusion about that another one for me was like, just glossing over 
the creation and use of the atomic bombs. Oh, yeah. Like, they were just two things that we dropped, and that was it. Like, we turned the page, and it was, like, the next day. Like, it was just, yeah, we did that. I think that's interesting to point out. Almost every one of these big sober moments or sad moments or self-incriminating moments that you've talked about, I remember the paragraph that appeared on them in the history textbook, right? Like, I can, I have memories of discussing dropping atom bombs on people and it's just like well we had to do it to end the war like yeah okay like i literally remember like seeing a picture of it and like you turn the page and it was like moving on next section yeah and then uh my last one was was i definitely was taught that the rules of grammar are fixed indisputable and handed down on high as platonic ideals of good and as somebody who loves language and learned a lot about language and how languages evolve and are created and things like that later, when you study the history of language and how they evolve over time, you realize that these things change and grow and respond to cultural forces and other kinds of art, all kinds of stuff. Like It's, it's a, an evolving conversation, just like laws are evol- evolving conversations, but you don't, you don't learn them that way the first time through. And I think we're kind of doing ourselves a disservice yet again by not adequately drawing attention to the fact that a lot of this stuff that we think of as true is provisionally true. I actually think about the grammar stuff a lot because I am not... My seventh grade language arts teacher called me grammatically challenged, and I stand firm by that. I still am. (laughs) It's just not what I value the most. I think it's important. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I I want things to work and to flow and to whatever. And what I actually find is that Students are immediately turned off by reading and writing because of those things. And that's not worth it to me. If you're scared, you're not always willing to. You know what I mean? Like I, You're not engaged with learning in the same way if you're, you're, not. If you're worried about. Mm-hmm. I think the same thing is true of like teaching history as a collection of unrelated, disambiguated facts and figures, mm-hmm. too. Like that's kind of unapproachable because it's just like this wall of knowledge that you need to memorize, right? So I think that that makes sense as a kind of turnoff, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, for, for English and yeah. for history. But And I never want that to be what keeps a kid from having an interest in writing or reading or something. And it is a lot of times. This is fill in the blank. It's just a little trivia segment that we do every episode. If you happen to know the answer to the trivia question, write into us. We'd love to hear from you. Hello at 16to1.com. If you send us the correct answer, we will send you stickers if you send us your address as well. Or even if you don't send us the correct answer, we'll still send you stickers if you write in. We will. You have to figure out how to get stickers to the Middle East. I do. We had a listener write in from Qatar and you've got to figure out how to get mail over there. I'll get them there. I'm excited about that project for you. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Would you like to give us the last episode's question? All right. Last episode. What were the first words written in Wikipedia? They were, hello world, written by Jimmy Wales, the co-founder. And as you mentioned in the last episode, our records of this edit do not exist on the current archive. Yeah. And so it's just, he has said what he wrote. Yeah. It was, hello world. He's the source on that one. He wrote, hello world, supposedly. First words ever written in Wikipedia. I think that's what I would write too. I would say, is this thing on? Yeah. It's the programming equivalent of that. It actually goes back to some of the early computing engineers at Bell Labs, I believe one of them really? first wrote Hello no doubt. to test that something worked. Anyway. Hello, world. Okay, and then this episode's question. The first surviving version of this combined epic known as the Old Babylonian version dates back to the 18th century BC. 
Oof. Only a few tablets of it have survived from that time. The epic is regarded as a foundational work in religion and the tradition of heroic sagas, with the main character forming the prototype for later heroes like Heracles, also known as Hercules, and the epic itself serving as an influence for Homeric epics. What is this text? And then what did you learn in this last couple of weeks? Our last little bit. So mine is, of course, about football, because that's my whole identity now. It is fall. Well, I actually learned two things. It is football season. It is fall. Okay, it's so almost the, like religious holiday with you. It's like it a, is. Yeah, yeah. So I learned two things actually. Okay. I'm going to start with the football thing. When an NCAA official misses a call, they will contact the coach to let them know that they ruled incorrectly about a play. Oh. So in Ohio State's first game against Indiana, Marvin Harrison made a catch in the end zone, and they took it away. They did not give us a touchdown. They contacted the coach Ryan Day during the following week to let them know that they had gotten it wrong. And wow. it should have been a touchdown. It's not a secret from the public that this happens, but it is kept rather private, the whole correction process. Because I mean, just... they might post it somewhere. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, if it's anything like how they rate MLB umps, you can see their stat calls as soon as the game's over. Mm-hmm. So I don't... Yeah, anyways, they let him know that it should have been a touchdown. It didn't change the, the, the game at all. Yeah. Other than to have another touchdown. But I imagine it could sometimes, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess that that might be why they don't issue an official ruling and change the score is because they would be opening themselves up to a lot of things yeah. if they don't stand by the call at the time. Yeah, human error is part of the game. The other thing I learned was you taught me what Uncanny Valley is. I didn't know what that was. Yeah. You were talking about somebody looking like they were Uncanny Valley, and I was like, what video game do I not know about? What nerd stuff are you referencing? So what, it was nerd stuff. It is nerd stuff, yeah. What uncanny, is the Uncanny Valley? Uncanny Valley is the human brain's attempt to process someone that isn't human. So we like look at them and we're like, this isn't quite right. But it's like a robot or something like that that we're trying to understand. So we can like detect that they're not human, but like we're struggling with the working through of what they are and why they look that way. Characters in animated works that look pretty realistic, but there's just something that makes our spine tingle a little bit about it because something is just not quite right, even though it's almost right. Mm. Anyway. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. I'm yeah. learning I'm learning more. There you go. Okay, what'd you learn? I was researching another headline that I couldn't corroborate because I couldn't find enough sources on it, but it was about the cabinet level minister of education in Japan. And what I learned was that Japan has this cabinet level position. It's the Minister of Education culture, sports, science, and technology. That position is currently occupied by Keiko Nagaoka, and she oversees MEXT, this ministry. But I just, I thought it was super interesting that Japan, that a country puts all of those things under one cabinet-level umbrella. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to cover. It is a lot, but I also understand why they would be grouped. Like, I understand why those things would want to be in conversation, you know? So I just, I thought that was an interesting approach. And yeah, that's what I I learned this week. Anything else? I think that about wraps it up for the week. You obviously have your back to school crud. We hope you feel better in another. Yeah, sorry. I sound like this, everybody. Hopefully next episode I'll be back. Well, we hope you feel better. And uh, we will talk to you all again in two weeks. See ya. Bye.
listeners. Thanks for supporting 16 to 1. We're your co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Adams. And I'm Katie Day. Find our show notes, archives, and resources, sign up for our newsletter, or get in touch with us via the contact form at 16to1.com, all spelled out. We are so grateful for our listener support. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the show and telling your friends or colleagues about it. The show is edited and produced by you, Chelsea Adams, and you're also responsible for our show's music. And you, Katie Day, serve as lead researcher and social media manager. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next show. One of my students today was like, are they bringing back Furbies? And I was like, no. (laughs) Right? No. They're like, yes. No. (laughs) Please, no.